BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Bowery Boys, episode 182. May West. Sex on Broadway. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. With another New York personality show. And what a personality we chose for this show. We didn't go with somebody boring. There's no snooze fest today. We're dealing with the legendary star of of stage and later screen, Ms. Mae West. You might recall we've done shows like this in the past on Rudolph Valentino, and I recently did a show on Billie Holiday's New York. But we're going to focus our intent with this show. Maybe it's because I just saw The Avengers last weekend, but I kind of see this as the origin story of Mae West, Mm -hmm. because we're going to get to the nuts and bolts of how she created that persona. That larger-than-life, witty, glamorous, super-sexualized persona that became an icon of the 20th century. Because it happened here, in New York. Mae was born in Brooklyn, she got her start on the New York stage, and she developed that career that would become iconic. All of this was developed in the first 39 years of her life when she lived in New York City. We're going to turn our attentions to the events that happened in 1926-1927 involving Mae West and a very shocking, scandalous show that debuted on Broadway. This was a show simply titled Sex. So I I hope you didn't think that I was getting too dirty in the opening (laughs) there when I said Mae West, Sex on Broadway. This was literally the name of her show, Sex. It was perceived as being so shocking for the proper tastes of New York in the late 1920s that they threw her in jail. But Mae West in jail turns out to be quite an interesting and entertaining story of its own. This story says a lot about New York in the 1920s, the edgy voices, the sort of underground cultures of the period, and of course, people's shocked reactions to the whole thing. So join us as we go up to see Mae West on Broadway. I got what takes his time. I'll go for any time. I'm a fast-moving gal. I like some slow. Got no use for fancy driving Wanna see a guy arriving in love 
satisfied, electrified, and know a guy what snakes is inside. Well, Tom, that was the lovely singing voice of Miss May West. Lovely indeed. The, how does one situate ourselves? Well, I just want to actually talking about Mae West. Yeah, situate her biography right here because there actually may be some listeners who aren't really familiar with mm-hmm. really what she's famous for. They might have heard her name and have some vague idea of what she looks like. Mae West, or Mary Jane West, as she was born in 1893, got her start on the vaudeville stage and then later on Broadway in the 1910-1920s and early 1930s, creating this body persona and a controversial reputation, which, which we are going to explore in detail. But then she moved off to Hollywood in the early 1930s and became one of the biggest stars in film, the highest paid actress by 1935. She's known for quippy one-liners, that sort of sexy swagger, very sexually forward and very confident in herself. Despite her very, very tiny frame in real life, she's often wrapped in evening gowns and diamonds. And also, the, she got started in her film career very late. She was already 40, in contrast to many of the actresses mm-hmm. uh, that were in film at the day. Her most famous line, which you all may know, why don't you come up and see me sometime, is actually a slight misquotation from how it's originally spoken in the movie She Done Him Wrong, where it's, I should come up sometime and see me. I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? Mm-hmm. Which she made in 1933 with a very young Cary Grant. Her star waned by the 1940s. She briefly returned to Broadway, which I'll talk about. She made some radio and television appearances. And we'll talk about her couple more notorious late-in-life movies before she died in 1980. But 1980s, which means that she lived to be 87 years old. And as she started performing young at the age of seven... She spent more than seven decades in front of the public. An unbelievable career where she literally saw the highs and lows of popularity. And by the end of her life, people really did evaluate her as this legend of camp, of a certain kind of glamour, but definitely of a kind of comedy, Mm -hmm. uh, of a certain sort of wit. And for being very sexually audacious by the 1970s, people looked at this and she had already inspired so many people from Marilyn Monroe. And today we even look at Dolly Parton and Madonna and other female entertainers Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of borrow rather liberally from some of the things that that she staked out here. But were rather, right, explicitly like Madonna in the 1990s when she came out with a book called Sex. Mm -hmm. Taking its title, perhaps um, explicitly from May West's 1926 play. So we're going to begin this show in Brooklyn again. Our last show on Park Slope was in South Brooklyn, but today we're going to begin the show in another area, which in the 1890s was called the Eastern District. Today, that area comprises Williamsburg, Greenpoint, and Bushwick neighborhoods. And if we're in the 1890s and May is born in 1893, mm-hmm. 
and we're in Bushwick or Williamsburg, are these their own towns at the time? They wouldn't become part of New York City until consolidation in 1898. They were absorbed into the city of Brooklyn by the 1890s. So, so she was a Brooklynite, definitely. Okay. But it is true that these had all been separate towns, and in terms of Williamsburg, had actually been its own city as late as the 1850s. May was born on August 1st, 1893. And I just want to say Eastern District because there was, there may be, at least in some quarters of the world, some ambiguity as to where in the Eastern District she was born. You know, you come across all of these crazy biographies of movie stars with just a wide variety of information, both accurate and otherwise. And Mae West is definitely no different. No. How many books did we consult? And many of them tell conflicting stories on everything, even as obvious as her place of birth. Yes. So most likely she was born in Bushwick, on Bushwick Avenue, or Willoughby Avenue, although some have even claimed Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Now, I kind of wanted to start this show here by looking into an old urban legend that I used to hear back when I would go to Williamsburg in the 1990s. I would always hear that there was this place that was kind of near the water that had a connection to Mae West. So this was a tavern, and I had kind of heard that she was born upstairs. Now, I don't believe that is the case. However, the name of this bar is Teddy's, and it does, in fact, have a connection to the story of Mae West. What was this connection? As legend has it, her father, John West, lived upstairs from the bar. He was a famed price fighter who worked in the livery business. He would send horse and carriages out for hire. So, you know, kind of the Uber of its day. Mm -hmm. uh, so John lived above this particular bar. And you know what? Honestly, that bar has that 1890s feel. Sure. It's a classic May West. So she may not have actually lived there, but you can kind of imagine a ghost of May West. Now, you all might be saying, like, why are you all so obsessed with pinpointing where Mae West is from? To why me, are we? Well, because to me, the essence of Mae West is that she is a Brooklyn girl. You know, through and through, if you listen to her voice, if you listen to her accent, she has a very, very certain affected version of a Brooklyn accent that you might have heard in the 1890s. Richly influenced by Brooklyn working class lifestyle and probably a lot of German infused in it as well, with the real industrial character of the Eastern district. But then also sort of delivered out of the corner of her mm -hmm. mouth, right, with a smirk. Let's roll some tape. Are you nervous, Lou? No. You are nervous, ain't you, Lou? No, I ain't nervous. Because if you're nervous, I'll go. I ain't nervous, but if you keep asking me, I will be. <laughs> So there you have it. There's our proof that May is born in Brooklyn uh, in the turn of the century, 1893. And the young May starts performing at her mother's pushing uh, when she's about seven years old. Now, like with everything else surrounding May West, the stories of her first performances are also sort of... Obscured by the mists of time. Or... By, like, decades of press agents and by right. her own sort of willing revisions. It's, it's hard to distinguish between fact and fiction mm -hmm. with Mae West. Mm -hmm. According to her account, um, at the age of seven in 1900 at the Royal Theater in downtown Brooklyn, she gave her, her first performance at an amateur hour 
where she took the stage dressed as, quote, Baby May. She was dressed up in a pink and green satin outfit with a really large Lillian Russell-style hat on. <laughs> Remember, she's yeah. seven years old. Uh-huh. This is according to the book She Always Knew How, May West, a personal biography by Charlotte Chandler. For her number, May takes to the stage to sing the song Movin' Day. She appears from the dark, and the spotlight was not on her. And she yells out, she waits for a second, then yells out to the man in the spotlight booth, Where is my spotlight? (laughs) Quote, I stamped my foot again, and the spotlight moved across the stage onto me and caught me in the act of demanding my light. The audience saw me and laughed and applauded with a spotlight on my shoulders like white mink. I went to center stage and sang my song. I was a hit with the audience. I received a gold medal from the Elks organization. (laughs) Okay, so this is her later day recollection of this particular moment. Involving Elks. (laughs) And men have been eating out of her hand ever since. There are other stories about her first <laughs> performance. That is that is her story. Then Nears Tavern, which has been running since 1829 in Woodhaven, mm-hmm. Queens, claims that May first performed there. Who knows? We do know that she lived nearby at 8905 88th Street. A plaque marks the home today. In Woodhaven. Yeah. Right. And it's widely believed that by the age of seven, she had stopped school. She had quit school to take on acting full time. As, as full-time as a seven-year-old can commit to acting. <laughs> sure. So if she was seven, what year was that, 1900? Right. During really the next 20 years, May would work her way through the New York working girl theater scene. And this was a fascinating time in theater history in the city. We've talked about it in other shows. There were many different categories of theatrical productions happening at the time. Sure, there was Broadway and the more traditional review shows that were happening uptown, and those were uh, the more respectable shows, but May didn't really work up there. She was working downtown as a child actress and getting her sort of training on the stage. There were music halls and saloons downtown that were kind of raucous places. There was vaudeville, which was happening all over town. Those were also respectable theaters uptown. But there were vaudeville theaters as well down on the Bowery and all over downtown. Some vaudeville houses were better than the others. Some were more expensive. Some charged more for admission than others. Some booked better acts. Baby May and the the other characters that she would play, the song and dance numbers that she would do, the comedy acts that she would do at the age of 12, 15 years old, she wasn't seen as a real like high-priced act. So no. she didn't get booked into a lot of the big-time stuff. At the very bottom, there was burlesque. And though she wouldn't go here now, that was a constant threat that if she didn't make it, she could slip down into burlesque. But for now, she's hoofing it almost nightly on the inexpensive vaudeville stage. I guess sometimes even sharing the stage with new silent films. But in 1911, while she was touring through the Midwest on a particularly junky song and dance number in the vaudeville scene, she um, went to the Milwaukee City Hall and she was married to her dance partner, a man named Frank Zatkus, who went by the stage name Frank Wallace. They kept it a secret. She was still only a teenager. Mm. But once the show was over, and even sort of before, she kind of acted like they weren't married at all. She sort of (laughs) was no longer interested in the fact that she was married to Frank. And even while they were still on the road, she was having dalliances with the other members of the cast. This is sort of how she would carry on for much of her 
life, I believe. She was a sexually liberated woman <laughs> early on, already in the 19-teens. Mm-hmm. She would have been the first to tell you that she quite liked sex. And that was an unusual thing for a woman to admit to. And this would really set the course for the types of shows that she would write and star in later. And so whatever happened to Frank? <laughs> Well, he remembered that he was married to Mae West. (laughs) Certainly later in life, as she became super famous, she managed to get a divorce from him in 1942, but then she would never remarry. However, that same year in 1911, she does start to get bit parts on Broadway in sort of comedy, musical comedy reviews. Uh, The first mention that I found of her in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle is actually from a review in 1912 called A Winsome Widow. And she is billed in the cast as playing a character named La Petite Daffy. Another mm-hmm. reference I found a couple years later describes Mae West, who is described as an eccentric comedian, while reminding one strongly of another eccentric comedian, because she was taking a lot of her act from various different acts. And in this case, the article is referencing the huge star of the day, Ava Tangway. Oh, right. Uh, so she was taking a little bit, borrowing a little bit of that. And so you'll find that Mae West is just borrowing little bits and pieces of other acts to create her own. Have you looked into Tangway? Do you know what her act was? <laughs> yes. It was totally odd. She kind of came out. <laughs> she would race out onto the stage, shrieking with her arms sort of like <laughs> electrified by her sides. And she basically played a lunatic who would also sing and do comedy numbers. May certainly would have looked at her and said, now what is she doing right? She's being her own thing. She quickly became a role model. The first mention I saw of her in the Times was in 1911 when she was in a show called A la Broadway, where she played the unlikely role of an Irish maid named Maggie (laughs) O'Hara. Said this reviewer in the Times, a, quote, girl named Mae West, hitherto unknown, pleased by her grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing. <laughs> so that was 1911. And she would be in other big shows. That's kind of what she was doing for a couple decades. She right. was trying to make a name for herself, and she was appearing in these kinds of shows wherever she could. But then times actually got tough into the 1920s, and it seems like between 1923 and 1925, she probably did go down into the burlesque circuit. Mm -hmm. There's some evidence that she appeared as May, M-A-Y, West, on the mutual burlesque circuit for three years, from 22 to 25. But she was also starting to write her own material because she felt like she couldn't find a show that liked her, so why not try to write a show of her own? I want to stop for a moment to talk about a couple of the gathering influences around her that were that would form the modern Mae West that we know. In 1920, with changing attitudes and changing fashions of women, and of course the right to vote, women were beginning to identify themselves very differently. Many of them were, of course, dressing in the new style of the flapper. People were exposed to sex in brand new ways because of the cinema that was becoming more and more prevalent. It was the Roaring Twenties. And Prohibition, which May was actually not a drinker, although she has inspired dozens of themed cocktails throughout the country. She, in fact, never was much of a drinker herself, although 
the spirit of prohibition, if you will, influenced a bit of her style. She was even rumored to be a lover of Oni Madden, who was a famous gangster and owner of the Cotton Club. And so she certainly borrowed some of the sass of perhaps the most famous woman of the speakeasy circuit. I'm talking about Texas Guinan, mm-hmm. the famous proprietor of the 300 Club. And she would go herself, even if she wasn't drinking. Oh, yes. She would make appearances all the time and even perform. But of course, perhaps the most important influence was actually the push against all of this, the push of censorship that rose as you know cinema became more audacious. May herself would claim, quote, I believe in censorship. I made a fortune out of it, unquote. <laughs> the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which had been started in the 1870s, was was always scouring the New York stage, had been doing so since it started, looking to shut down anything that was scandalous or deemed amoral. They would soon focus their attention on Ms. West here. And at the same time, with the influx of all of the immigrants to New York and the influx of working class young people to the cities with some disposable income who could go out at night and there were suddenly all these entertainment options for them that hadn't been there a generation before... Of course, the authorities reacted to this and were made very nervous by this. And there was a lot of smutty stuff going on around the stages. And of course, <laughs> May was extremely influenced by it. And her creativity was inspired by this. And also by the lives of what they might call back then disreputable characters who were flaunting sexual misbehaviors. And by disreputable characters, you're talking about prostitutes? Uh, pr- prostitution, yes. And let us not forget that by this time then, 1925, she's probably also working in burlesque. Mm -hmm. And meeting a lot of interesting characters there as well. So she was inspired to write a play in the mid-1920s that was an homage to some of the ladies of the night that she saw wandering around the waterfront. This play was originally called The Albatross, but when Mm -hmm. that title didn't sizzle, she just decided to call it straight up sex. It was completed in... I'm glad she focus grouped that and really tested that because, yeah, albatross. And it was completed in 1926. It's funny that the play Sex is one of her most New York moments because it's a play set in a brothel in Canada. She plays a prostitute named Margie Lamont. Just She's just trying to find her way out of the scene, find a real man, but swirling around her are murder, kidnapping, blackmail, despair, and Yet there's a kind of absurd comedy floating over the whole thing, of course. But the play also has a lot of deeper meanings to it as well. I sat down yesterday with Jordan Schildkraut, who's a professor of theater at SUNY Purchase, who told me some of his thoughts about sex. So obviously a a play titled Sex is dealing with something, uh, a sexual topic. Was it straight up a sex farce? What was it? Okay, so uh, Sex is actually a fascinating play, and it centers on a character, a prostitute, named Margie Lamont, played by Mae West. And I would call it a romantic melodrama. And it's about uh, Margie, who's kind of got, you know, a heart and heart, but it's still a heart of gold. But she ends up falling for this young man who's actually a member of the, you know, wealthier class. 
when his mother finds out, she basically tries to railroad the Mae West character. And Mae West stands up to her. One way that I read the play, as I read many of Mae West's plays, is that it's actually about sexual hypocrisy. She actually does have a kind of moral stance against the sort of duplicitous and hypocritical members of the upper class when it comes to sexuality versus her own kind of more straightforward, bold, no-nonsense way of thinking about sex. So it's, it's, it's sexual in nature, but also it's making a statement about class. Uh, I would argue that it is. And indeed, I think a lot of Mae West plays do this. So it's actually quite a very, it's a very deep play considering some of the salacious details that sort of ooze from the stage, from the text itself. Well, let's say can be interpreted as as a deep play because I think others took issue with that. I'm really wondering how the audiences were (laughs) reacting to this. Where where was this play? Okay, so the play opened on April 26th, 1926 at the Daily 63rd Street Theater. So basically near Lincoln Center today. And that is not a theater theater still with us. No, no, no. There's a, It's just a, an apartment building today. It was, it was knocked down many decades ago. But get this crazy historical coincidence. So this play opened in April, right? So that's just two blocks away from a building called Campbell's Funeral Home. That was the famous funeral home of the stars. That August, Rudolph Valentino passed away, and it was then that they had that huge riot of thousands of people in the street. So that was at the same time that Mae West's sex show was going on right here on the other side of the plaza. There may have been some mourners who drowned their sorrows by attending a production here. Well, if they did, and he died in August, and this opened in April, that would mean that the show at least lasted that long. mm -hmm. It was a hit with audiences. It was a popular hit. It was not a hit with the critics. Ah. From the New York Times, the headline, Sex, a Crude Drama. A crude, inept play, cheaply produced and poorly acted, that, in substance, is sex. (laughs) Shortened to the point. So the Times didn't like it. And they weren't alone. Uh, Most critics didn't like it, but in the way that they were describing the show made it very appetizing for audiences because it just seemed very scandalous. It also seems that they were uncomfortable with the direction that Ms. West was taking the theater in general. Well, she was actually working on another project at this time. So the play was doing well. So she decided to work on something else that even pushed the boundaries in another direction. This show was called The Drag. Remember when I said that there were all these major influences onto her personality on this new character? Well, another one was the underground gay world of mm-hmm. Greenwich Village at this time and, and of Harlem. The gay world, this very exotic world, was kind of seen as a curiosity for the more adventurous folks of New York in the 1920. Uh, West, of course, was surrounded by gay fans and men in the chorus line. It was even bubbling up in the entertainment of that year. In 1926, there was a lesbian-themed play called The Captive, co-starring a very young Basil Rathbone from Sherlock Holmes fame. So May was acquainted with gay men from just working with them and from having them as admirers, 
the general public knew of the gay scene more and more because they would sometimes, quote, slum it by mm-hmm. going down perhaps to places that gays went out at night or, t- or just seeing people on the streets of the yeah. village. But it wasn't acceptable behavior to most people. So what May was actually doing was sort of exploiting the sort of exoticness, but also the the fear that certain people had in this play that was called The Drag. She was obviously interested in capitalizing on anything scandalous, right? She she had a hit that was on one stage on Broadway, still that she was performing in, and by the way, she she claimed that sex was an educational piece of theater, <laughs> right? So she's probably well, using this same excuse again to now parade gays on stage uh, that she found downtown. And we, I talked about this with Jordan when we chatted yesterday. Once again, uh, not so distantly from sex, what many of the critics and the sort of cultural watchdogs focused on uh, was not so much just the dialogue or the drama itself, but these particular characters, having these explicitly gay characters on stage, and in Act 3, they all have a big drag party. They're in wigs and gowns and performing musical numbers and dancing together, and this outraged people. Uh, One critic, I believe, called it an orgy of filth. I mean, that sounds really outrageous for this time. It's really shocking to hear that she even worked on a play like this. And unfortunately, I think that May overplayed her hand here. So May tried out the play, The Drag, Mm -hmm. uh, first in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and then in New Jersey. In both cases, in Bridgeport, the director and May's sister were arrested, and then when it was in New Jersey, it was shut down there as well. Which obviously drummed up more interest in the show. (laughs) Also got back to New York that she had this play that was even more shocking than the one she already had. And this is at the same time that these two other shows on Broadway dealt with gay issues, so something probably had to be done. Up until this time, she had been kind of shielded by the mayor himself, Jimmy Walker, the fun time party mayor who, you know, hit the town with his mistress and sometimes kicked them back and may have even been a, a, a paramour of Miss West herself. He didn't think that these types of things were important to crack down on, and he left town on vacation in February of 1927, and the man that was put in charge, the acting deputy mayor, Joseph McKee, well, let's just say they nicknamed him Holy Joe for a very particular reason, and that was he did not tolerate these types of immoral productions going on in his city. So sure enough, Mr. McKee, Holy Joe, sent out the squad cars to Broadway on the night of February 9th, 1927, headed for the three most wicked shows on Broadway. We'll get to what happened later that evening and to the rest of May's story after the commercial break. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. 
In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. And now, back to the show. So you left us with the police officers heading off to these three shows with their paddy wagons in hot pursuit of actors and with with the casting crew associated with these three degenerate pieces of theater. Those shows being Sex, of course, Mae West's show, the production The Captive, and a third show, a body sex farce by the name of The Virgin Man. It sounds like a movie with Steve Carell. <laughs> The Virgin Man, The Captive, and Sex. What could possibly be objectionable about these shows? Well, in the case of Mae West and Sex, at the end of her performance, the police raided the back of the theater and arrested Mae and the rest of the cast and hauled them off to night court. Because, of course, this is late at night. Mm -hmm. So they sort of careen through Times Square and they head off to get booked for these charges of indecency. There is some ambiguity about which night court that they went to. There's Hell's Kitchen Court, which seems pretty likely. Right around the corner. Right right there. Other sources will say that they went all the way downtown to night court at the Jefferson Market Courthouse, which is today the Jefferson Market Library. What we do know is that May spent the night down at Jefferson Market because there was a women's prison that was right behind where the uh, library's main reading room is today. So if you can envision, we just visited uh, Mm -hmm. the library yesterday to kind of scope it out and see the scene. And this is a beautiful 19th century Italianate Gothic brick building. Castle-like structure. You walk in, climb the staircase to the second floor, walk into the main adult reading room. That was the main courtroom. And behind it, if you would have looked through the main windows that face west from there, right outside those windows would have been the prison. And that's where Mae West spent the night in a cell locked up with other common criminals of the female persuasion. And she allegedly was in such a cramped cell that she couldn't even sit down, still dressed in her <laughs> in her sex costume. But her punishment didn't stop there. Well, no, she would face charges. But that was on February 9th. The trial would take place over the course of several weeks. And so the show would continue, which is... Great, (laughs) because the ticket sales had started to lag just a little bit. And imagine, her name was suddenly on the front page of all of the city papers and papers throughout the country. In the ensuing weeks, as the trial would play out, the name Mae West started to become synonymous with sex. Lowercase sex, and the play. She was charged with corrupting the morals of youth, The prosecutors were also kind of jerks about it, knowing that the show was still going on uptown at 63rd Street. Mm -hmm. They would try to drag the the court proceedings out as long and dull as possible so that the performers would miss those evening shows. But the cast would have to race back uptown to get in costumes and to leap onto stage in time. Well, they were in court because of the play. It's a very odd situation It's odd that they were released on bail and able to still put on the show and that May, throughout the whole thing, would kind of look amused or she would look bored. She would apply makeup to her face during the proceedings. (laughs) Looking indifferent, of course she let some wisecracks fly. 
On March 5th, she finally spoke her mind when she said in court, quote, I think that sex is one of the cleanest plays on Broadway. There is no nudity and no obscene language in the whole play. Called sex. <laughs> Called sex. <laughs> finally, a month later, on April 4th, she was found guilty and then sentenced a couple weeks later. See, this just kept dragging wow. out, always on the front page. She was sentenced to 10 days in the workhouse on Welfare Island. Wow. I would, I'd like to get a gander at that. Here with Which, a broom or something in her hand. Well, you probably could have seen it because, of course, every journalist followed sure. her mm-hmm. to her sentencing and covered the story while she was in prison with any angle they could get. And she was in the workhouse Right, here. on Welfare Island, which is today's Roosevelt Island. And we have a podcast about that if you want to know more about the island's olden days. Many functions. She was chauffeured to the island in a limousine. Some of the big stories that came out of her stint in prison were that she brought her own silk underwear because she didn't like the scratchy burlap (laughs) cotton underwear that they provided. She somehow transformed her prison uniform into sort of a gorgeous form-fitting number. Diamonds are the new black. She dined nightly with with the prison warden, a man named Harry Schleff and his wife. And her only job at this workhouse was to dust the books in the library. But according to Harry, there just weren't enough jobs for the ladies to do. So he was kind of of giving away these sort of fake Mm -hmm. jobs. So she didn't have it too difficult. She was in the papers every day. She was receiving all of these gifts. She was giving them away to the other women who were there with her in in the workhouse. And when she left, she granted one interview on her exit to Liberty Magazine, for which she charged $1,000, and she donated that $1,000 to establishing a library in her honor at the workhouse. (laughs) (laughs) And Schleth, by the way, said that he would exercise caution in selecting um, the only correct books to be in the Mae West Library. (laughs) If only it were still around today. Obviously, however, when she was off at prison, sex had discontinued. She came back and she was looking for other plays. So she went right back in. She she launched into another play in November that year called The Wicked Age, which was kind of a flop. So here May was now without a hit. And this was a woman who had become notorious on Broadway. But it seems that she may have learned a little lesson through this whole sex scandal. If Maybe. You were to do what she wants to do, refine it in a way that makes it just a little bit more suitable for these censors. And so on April 9th, 1928, so a little over a year after she was arrested for sex, came the debut of a brand new play called Diamond Lil which debuted at today's Bernard Jacobs Theater on West 45th Street. It's next to Schubert Alley In nearby. the middle of the theater district. Mm-hmm. So this is a classic tale of New York vice and crime that's set in the Bowery in the 1890s. Diamond Lil, May, is a manager of a dance hall, which also happens to be the, a brothel, as was the custom back then. She's well-to-do in dripping in diamonds and finery. So the plot involves the various goings-on in such an establishment as she falls in love with a Salvation Army officer from the Bowery Mission just down the street. I mean, it's funny because this is 1928, looking back on the 1890s, mm-hmm. but would not be out of place in the Bowery of 2015. <laughs> <laughs> 
This also sounds like perhaps a safer time for her to set something. Yeah. I mean, having it in the past, she's allowed to get away with certain things that she couldn't before. Even if she's playing basically a madam and a prostitute, (laughs) she's playing it while wearing costumes of a generation or two earlier. So it makes her a little bit less sexually explicit. Ironically enough, though, this look, this new look of Mae West, of an hourglass figure, this retro look would actually become her signature look. Imagine if we saw an actress today that was primarily known for looking like she's from the 1970s. That's Mm -hmm. kind of how Mae West was. But looking like she was from the 1890s. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, it must have been funny for an audience to look up and see this woman who was associated so closely with this place, sex, Mm -hmm. that she shocked people and she's back out with a provocative theme but she's kind of dressed like your grandma <laughs> would have dressed Me- yeah and so it kind of mutes it a little bit right meanwhile the people in the audience the women all have like short hairs and like short skirts because Look like flappers yeah, right so this would basically be a star vehicle and would be really define Mae West going forward and carry her on to greater things, carry her over, in fact, to a Hollywood career. But the difference between this and sex is the critics got on board with this. And so finally, she had dual acclaim from audiences and critics alike. Which is really kind of an amazing turn of events in just a couple of years that she would have nobody in the press who would really back her. And then suddenly, a couple years later, just because she's embracing something nostalgic, Mm -hmm. it seems that she didn't just find this look for herself, but in going kind of retro, like you said, she's becoming something of a parody of the character that she had been playing before. And that's another key of this, is that she's now larger in life. There's something that's matching what her press persona is. So people have been reading about her in the papers for a year, Mm. and now she's playing a version of what she had done, but far more over the top, and of course today, which we know is campier. But what I like is, even as she's sort of reaching this new point in her career, she's still working on edgier fare here, and going back and taking some of the more provocative ideas of past shows and and creating new ones. Because she she just wouldn't let that show, the drag, (laughs) go. It never really opened anyway on Broadway. It had its only show, its only full show, the night before sex got rated. And it was really, as you've said, it was because of the drag that sex got rated. Mm -hmm. So... Nothing. So the drag sort of sat around and nothing happened with it. Nobody would touch it. So she tries to bring it back in 1928, the same year that she's so successful with Diamond Lil. She brings back the drag in a new incarnation called Pleasure Man. But <laughs> she decided to instead make it somehow a little bit more acceptable, quote unquote, by using female impersonators, mm-hmm. which were a big hit already, you know, and were performing in vaudeville. They were filling up theaters all over the country. There was this movement called the Pansy Craze, which we won't get into right now, but it was essentially this wave of entertainment involving female impersonators uh, that was sort of here at the tail end of Prohibition. So in focusing the Pleasure Man on female impersonators, she thought it was a bit of a safer bet because other shows already did the same thing. Mm -hmm. The only difference was that she was showing them off stage, quote unquote, and backstage, you know, as a sort of, it was about them. So mm-hmm. she was showing their lives backstage, and they were also very effeminate. And they were, they were even off stage still 
behaving in effeminate ways, and they were embodying these very characters. In the dandy, limp-wristed manner. Right. So again, this was scandalous. The Pleasure Man opened on October 1st, 1928, at the Biltmore, but of course it didn't stay open very long. In fact, it was only open for two nights. From the New York Times on October 2nd, 1928, Police Raid May West Play sees 56 at opening... Quote, the entire cast of Pleasure Man, 55 actors, actresses, and musicians, was arrested on the stage at the Biltmore Theater, 47th Street, between Broadway and 8th Avenue, last night, immediately after the curtain fell on the first performance. May West, author of the play, was arrested and released on $500 bail a short time after when she went to the 47th Street police station to visit the members of the cast and attempt to arrange for their release on bail. What I think is fascinating about that, and just visualize this, mm-hmm. Greg, May went to the police station still dressed as Diamond Lil. She had to wait till <laughs> from the after, other play, right? From the other, from the other show, she had to come downtown and visit her other show in jail. Now, maybe this is more of a contemporary view on this whole thing, but I can't help but think that maybe with the Pleasure Man, that she was sort of trolling the city at this point. She's like, you know what? I'm going to create a show that I'm defying you to close down. It's still pretty salacious and saucy. In fact, the most shocking thing about the Pleasure Man isn't actually any of the gay elements, but there's a very shocking death at the very end of it in a very grisly manner. Well, and the show also ended, as did the drag, in a drag ball. It's almost the same (laughs) drag ball that was in the drag. And she wasn't done provoking audiences and critics here with just the Pleasure Man. She, she had other controversial plays. That's right. She also had a play called The Constant Sinner, which was based on a book that she wrote, because at the same time, she's writing <laughs> novels. In the case of The Constant Sinner, she decided to tackle another hot-button issue, interracial love affairs, which she found, interestingly, was easier to portray in her novel than on stage because it was forbidden. So we're at the end of the 1920s now, Greg, and obviously in October of 1929, with the stock market crash, times get tough all over the country, and the Depression hits Broadway pretty hard. Obviously, people are going to cut back on things, including theater tickets. And this is happening at the same time that talkies have just entered into the scene. Motion pictures just started talking in 1927. Who knew how to talk? Broadway <laughs> actors knew how to talk. Well, especially, especially Mae West. She was in her late 30s at this time. She had been on a stage for almost all of those years. The woman knew how to talk. (laughs) And a lot of the silent film stars did not know how to talk. So this transition was bumpy, as anybody who has seen Singing in the Rain um, knows. (laughs) And so theater stars were lured out west by film studio executives who were also offering not just employment, they were also offering much more money than these actors had ever made on a Broadway stage. And I imagine they saw that hit show that Mae West was in, Diamond Lil, Mm. and were already conceiving of what it might look like on the big screen. Although they had their own censorship rules in place, and they were wary that she would just head out to Hollywood and put... Diamond Lil on stage, which would probably be a hit, but it could bring about governmental censorship and interference Mm -hmm. in the making of these movies. But still, May was somebody worth gambling on, and Paramount sensed a star and made May West an offer that turns out she couldn't refuse. She headed out to make her first film in 1932 in the film Night After Night. She has just a small part, 
She doesn't have a lot of big scenes. It was her first quip that really stole the show. Here's the scene. She's handing her coat to the coat check. Business. Fine. You've insulted lately? <laughs> Goodness, what beautiful diamond. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. <laughs> the next year in 33, she filmed She'd Done Him Wrong, which was her first major hit with the new and untested, really, co-star Cary Grant. And She'd Done Him Wrong was actually the, the play Diamond Lil. They just renamed it, and they changed we, it. They changed yeah. the main character's name. She mm-hmm. changed it enough to sort of get it by. And then she'd go on to make many more hits, including big ones like I'm No Angel in 1933 and Belle of the 90s in 1934, Klondike Annie in 1935, and then she would team up in 1940 with W.C. Fields for My Little Chickadee. And the focus of our show, though, has been about the, the Broadway life, but let's just say in the 40s, her film fortunes faded, and she stayed out of film after 1943 for about 25 years. She came back to New York to do a couple plays on Broadway in the 1940s, including a revival of Diamond Lil. It was in 1949. She starred at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, and then after about a month, she broke her ankle, and so they had to... They postponed it, and then she returned like several months later. So wow, it's like that um, performance of Hedwig, which John I was supposed Mitchell. to see that same one. John Cameron Mitchell, Mae West, right? What's the difference? Well, so I'm sure he's taking inspiration. <laughs> but then Mae West would go back to Hollywood, and she would do radio, and she would do television. She would camp it up all over the place, including in 1964 when she appeared alongside a talking horse named Mr. Ed. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Is this Mr. Post speaking? No, I'm his associate. Who is this, please? This is Miss May West speaking. Well, I saw one of your movies on TV last night. Gee, golly, oh boy, wow! That was my movie, all right. <laughs> when do you think Mr. Post can start designing my stables? Well, when would you want him to start? Immediately. Tell him I'm a lady who's not used to waiting. <laughs> was that kind of a low point, or will we call that a, an interesting high point? Well, if you watch that whole episode, Greg, and listeners, you can watch that whole episode on YouTube. I might have last week. <laughs> <laughs> You will see that the family, Wilbur is the husband, Mm -hmm. and I can't remember her name. Everybody in the neighborhood is so excited that Mae West is going to come visit them because she wants Wilbur to build a stable. Anyway, I'm getting too much into the details of that episode of Mr. Ed. But everybody in the neighborhood is so excited that Mae West is coming to visit. So she still embodied this sensuality and her reputation preceded her and that might explain her sort of late career resurgence in a couple oddball films the first being myra breckenridge a notoriously cult film right that came out in 1970 and starred raquel welch it's billed as a sex change comedy (laughs) and it includes a memorable performance given by ms may west and from a novel by gore vidal but Tom, I just saw her final film uh, just a, yesterday, Sextet. Which came out in 1978. 
eight. And it is a weird movie. I mean, it's it's sort of designed as a cult film. It has a lot of big stars that kind of float in and out of it. Mm-hmm. But May West is like I would just say she's rolled in and out of scenes. She seems like she's maybe not all there. I mean, she's a she was very advanced in years well, she, by this time. She would have been you know? eighty five. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. And even at eighty five, it wasn't like she was playing a typical eighty five year old. She was still wearing this blonde bombshell wig. And and an outfit to go with it. And for half the movie, she's dressed in a wedding dress, married, getting married to Timothy Dalton, who would later become James Bond. Surrounded by muscle men, right? Just <laughs> yes. always, always surrounded. And the thing about it, even up until Sextet, even up until she was 85 years old, she was surrounded by men who were looking with sensuality. Maybe at this point, mock sensuality. Maybe it was a parody, maybe it was high camp, but I think there was still some respect and sort of... I think there was real affection there. Two years later, in November of 1980, she would pass away back in L.A., although she would later be entombed at the Cypress Hill Cemetery back in Brooklyn. So May came home to Brooklyn. And, you know, I would suggest you want to go out there and pay your respects to Ms. West and her glorious career, that while you're out there to bring her a rose or two, you can also stop by two other iconic figures who are also buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery, baseball icon Jackie Robinson and Mondrian, the famous painter. And while you're at it, why not just kick back and enjoy a good Mae West film? You might think that you know Mae West, watch some of those films... And she might still, 70 or 80 years later, surprise you. We would like you to come up and see the blog sometime, BarryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have a lot of film clips and, of course, as many pictures as possible from the late 1920s of Mae West and her scandalous fury throughout the city of provocative plays. We have a lot of clips that are going to be going into our outtakes reel, that will be available to the patrons of the show, those fine folks who have joined us in supporting the show at patreon.com slash boys. These supporters of the show who are giving as little as a dollar a month to help us produce twice as many shows receive special access to extra audio clips and a whole range of extra little goodies that we put together. So you can see what those are at patreon.com slash boys. And if you are a patron, head over to download the special outtakes. In addition, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and also on Instagram, where I'll be taking photographs all over Manhattan for a very special project, which I am very happy to announce right now. What is it, Greg? The Bowery Boys are writing a book. Uh, the book will come out next year. We are so excited. It is so filled with ex- fun, interesting information. We're not going to give you any clues right now as to what it's about or what the content is going to be. Because However, we don't have any idea. Well, we have, we have a little idea. We have a little no, We're idea. well into the writing of this. <laughs> but we'll give you little clues. And the first place to look for those clues is on our Instagram account. Mm. Because that is when I'm on the ground out looking for information, going to various places, and you might see some things that will be in this book a year from now. Mm-hmm. So we thank you for joining us for this fun romp through the New York life and training of Ms. May West. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon, suckers. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.